0: Hi, and welcome to The Cyclical Podcast. My name is Cassandra Wilder, and I'm a naturopathic doctor and a women's cyclical health expert. This podcast is a space where we demystify all of the bad hormone advice we've been given and instead get back down to the foundations. Your dream of regular pain-free periods, balanced hormones, and vibrant energy is within reach. Join me and other incredible experts here every single Monday for conversations that are sure to be life-changing. Let's get started hey everyone and welcome back to the cyclical podcast i am so excited about today's episode because it is about one of my favorite subjects blood sugar i really believe this is the missing key for so many health issues including cycle and hormone imbalances not enough people are talking about blood sugar not enough people are giving real practical advice and suggestions around it and Even within medicine, I feel like unless you are in the diabetic range suddenly, your doctor's probably not going to say a whole lot to you. And even if they do, their suggestions may be to just cut out all carbs or never eat sugar again. So these really are not long-term effective solutions to blood sugar, and it often leaves people more confused, more frustrated, and more in the dark. This is why I was so excited to interview the amazing Danny Hamilton, who is a functional nutritional therapy practitioner and a renowned blood sugar expert who specializes in hypoglycemia and reactive hypoglycemia. And as you'll hear in the episode today, she went through so much of this in her own journey and attributed so many symptoms that she was experiencing as normal, and she really didn't uncover parts of who she even was until she got her blood sugar under control. And don't worry, she gives so many practical suggestions on what we can all do every day to support our blood sugar, so no vague things like never eat sugar again. (laughs) Instead, you'll actually get some really useful tips, things that I think can easily be woven into any of our daily routines. Before we start today's episode though, I wanna remind you about our amazing sponsor, Jubilance. They are the leading evidence-based scientific approach to PMS relief, and when I tell you the research and the reviews from thousands of women really show how effective this tool is, I mean it. Using Jubilance for just one month has shown significant relief of PMS symptoms like anxiety and mood changes, so it is something I keep in my cabinet now at all times. I am so grateful that PMS is being studied more, and that more people are looking for real solutions for the women that struggle with PMS and PMDD, and if this is something that you would like to get started with, you can take $10 off with code CYCLICAL. Don't forget, you also get free shipping and a money-back guarantee. You can order this at jubilance.com or go to the link in the show notes below. Hi, Danny. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Cyclical Podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I know this is going to be such a helpful episode because when it comes to blood sugar, I feel like there's a lot of strange advice floating (laughs) around the internet. And I think that today we'll get to sift through all that and you can bring more clarity to a conversation that has become surprisingly confusing for so many people.
1: Totally. I was super confused about blood sugar and actively avoided learning about it most of my life because Mm. it was confusing. And frankly, I thought it was kind of boring (laughs) and I didn't have diabetes, so I didn't think I had to pay attention to it, but I was very wrong.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm glad you just brought that up because that does seem to be kind of the narrative, especially I think in the US that unless you're diabetic, who cares about blood sugar and who cares about pairing meals properly and all of that. So can you take us back 10, 15 years ago? What sparked your interest in blood sugar and why did it become such a passion of yours?
1: Yeah, great question. So my story kind of starts back in childhood with these things that I didn't realize were issues. So I was a kid who always liked sweet foods, you know, like a lot of kids, but if it was a proxy processed breakfast food. It had my name on it. <laughs> I had got a lot of colds, a lot of ear infections, lots of antibiotics. And I started, I had really bad um, strep throat, got it six times in a year, my senior year of high school. And then the next year when I went to college, I started to develop really bad seasonal allergies and asthma, and I was getting sinus infections. And Then I moved to Miami, Florida, where the season for allergies is year-round, and so I felt like I needed to be in a bubble because I, as it turns out, was even allergic to palm trees, which I didn't even think was a thing, but apparently it is, and so I was so allergic to so many things. I had so many medications, allergy pills prescriptions inhalers I was getting allergy shots I was allergic to so many things that I had to get five different allergy shots to try to make your body less reactive to whatever you're reacting to wow. and it was it was just a mess and I was in my early 20s and <clears throat> I didn't I, I didn't get any answers from mainstream doctors I used to say you know why is this happening to me like why am I such a mess and and they didn't have any good answers? They just said, Oh, well, guess it's bad luck or genetics. And that never really sat well with me because it was really disempowering. I had nothing I could do but to continue getting all these prescriptions doing all these shots. And I was feeling terrible. I was so itchy. I'd wake up feeling like an elephant was sitting on my chest. I couldn't breathe. I wanted to like rip my throat out. My eyes were watering. Allergies are really, really intolerable if you've ever suffered with them. And then anytime I exercise, I was doing these really loud coughs and everyone's staring at me. I mean, it was just... And then I had sinus infections, and the main symptom was that they made me tired. So I'd drop a pen at work and start crying because I was just so tired, like a little kid who needed a nap. And it's like, okay. I, at the same time, I was working as a nurse, as a speech therapist in a nursing home, and I was seeing all my clients had all these issues, and they had so many diagnoses and so many medications, and I was like, this is, you know, what's going to happen to me if. if I don't change, you know, if something doesn't change. And so by the grace of the universe, this book landed in my hand called The Paleo Diet Solution by Rob Wolf. And I read this book and it was about taking out processed foods and eating all real foods and how we've been misled and lied to. And I was just so passionate about this. I started, I changed my food All the allergies, all the sinus issues, all the asthma, everything went away like a miracle. It was so insane. And I was wanting to shout this from the rooftops to basically anyone who would listen. Luckily, now I have a podcast where I can do that Um, because before this, I was kind of like, do you know what's in that pizza you're about to eat? People are like, I don't want to hear this right now. (laughs) So anyway, I was super excited about healing myself with food and I was riding high on this paleo train and then i had a really stressful year and i started to get a lot of uh hormonal symptoms so i had always had pms but it got really really bad really painful cycles and breast tenderness and bloating um i had always had acne but it got way worse it was all over my forehead all over my cheeks and my chin and I was waking up at like 11 in the morning when typically I would always like wake up with the sun like a rooster. I was like sleeping in and I was so tired. And then I stopped getting my period altogether for six months and I was gaining weight. I'm like, what just happened? Because this diet just healed me. So what's going on? And so I, I kind of figured out that I had, uh, I probably had polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, if I have this, what do I need to do? And the information out there at the time was just don't have gluten, don't have dairy, don't have refined sugar. And it's like, oh, check, check, check. Like, cool, I'm doing all these things right. So I guess I'll just paleo harder because I didn't know what to change because I was eating healthy foods and I was, quote, doing everything right. And I was exercising and doing yoga and I just, of course, because nothing changed, nothing changed. And so I was really frustrated. And so my mom was like, why don't you just go to the doctor? So I go to the doctor and I tell him, look, I'm eating well, I'm exercising. I can't lose weight no matter what I do. And I think I have PCOS and I need some help. And he goes, well, you do have PCOS. You have to lose weight. You have to take the pill and there's no cure. I was like, are you serious right now? Yeah. So he forced me to walk out the door with a prescription to the pill. I ripped it up when I got in my car. And then I was more motivated than ever to heal this by myself. So I continued to you know, read every blog post I could get my hand on, listen to every podcast I could, and nothing what that was said about PCOS was any different than what I was doing. I did try to take a couple of supplements like Vitex and saw Palmetto and I saw absolutely no change. And so it was really frustrating because I used to say like, my body's just broken. My body hates me. My body's rebelling. And that felt really terrible to like, all of a sudden have this like hatred and mistrust towards your own body. It feels really, really disempowering. So when I, one day I was driving in my car and I was listening to yet another podcast trying to figure out my issues. And I heard someone say, PCOS is the diabetes of the ovaries. And I almost drove my car off the road because I was like, whoa, slow down! What do you mean diabetes? Doesn't that have to do with blood sugar? And I was like, okay, cool. What do we know about diabetes? I'm like, nothing. I I know nothing. I'm like, okay, what do I know about blood sugar? I'm like, nothing, (laughs) also nothing. So I had nothing to go on because even all this time as I was like learning and listening to things, like I said at the beginning, I actively avoided learning about blood sugar because it was confusing and I didn't think I had to listen to it. I didn't think it was relevant to me. So all this time I was avoiding learning something that would be really helpful. So I Started to learn about blood sugar, and I looked back and I said, Okay, I have to have symptoms. There have to be symptoms because I'm already this progressed with having, you know, the, the PCOS and the PMS issues and all these things. So I looked back and I was like, What I thought were all these personality traits were actually blood sugar issues. And that's what really mm-hmm. shocked me because I was like, I just thought this was who I am. I didn't think this was a problem. I just thought it was like, oh, this is my thing. I used to say, I don't have a sweet tooth. All my teeth are sweet. (laughs) I used to wake up really shaky and say, well, I just need to eat breakfast because I'm a breakfast person. I used to hate fasting blood work because I'm a foodie and I like to eat because I would go to this blood work and I would feel so terrible because I didn't eat. I would feel lightheaded and dizzy and shaky. And this was the only time I ever felt like that because it was the only time I was forced to not eat. So then I realized, oh, I'm like a grazer. I'm a snacker. And it was because I was trying to prevent my blood sugar from crashing. So it wasn't that it was healthy hunger. It was that I was trying to avoid feeling hungry. I hated, hated, hated feeling hungry. So I would always leave the house with snacks. I always had food in my car, I like almonds in my car or a granola bar in my purse. Or I would never leave the house without food. Even if I were going out to eat, I would always eat before I left the house. And I'm like, you're going out to eat. Why are you doing this? And it was again, because I hated that feeling of hunger because my hunger wasn't healthy hunger. It was a blood sugar crash. And so I didn't realize that all of these things like, oh, I was the hangry friend. Like all these things we think are just common, normal stuff. Like, oh, I need my coffee, hashtag caffeine addict. And it's like, oh, okay, maybe I'm really dependent on snacking and caffeine because my energy is tanking because of my blood sugar. This is something that I had never put together before. So when I was able to fix my blood sugar, everything got better. It was unbelievable. I could go for long periods of time without thinking about food, which was huge for me because I was always thinking about where I'd get my next meal. I could go for long periods of time and have steady energy. I wasn't so dependent on caffeine. I didn't need to snack anymore. That food noise in my brain, I used to call it my sugar dragon. I would say like I'd get into whole foods and the sugar dragon would start talking. It's like, okay, get something with get something with chocolate, but not something too big cuz you know you're going to eat the whole thing. Like it was always this like mental debate about like how much sugar I could have and like it when I fixed my blood sugar, that just quieted. It was amazing. I had all this space to think about other things. And one thing that I never realized, it was like this dirty secret of mine, was that I used to struggle with binge eating. And I didn't really realize that until after I fixed my blood sugar. It never happened again. And I was like, oh, interesting. Like I was just sort of ashamed of this little thing that I had going on. And it was really driven by my blood sugar. So there's there's so many things that healed in my health. And I just also, our blood sugar helps us be more resilient and have better long-term health outcomes. So everything I'm doing to help myself feel better now by working on my blood sugar is also helping my future health as well. So that's my story.
0: Incredible. There's so many gems in what you just said. Like you said, having certain personality traits really not be you but be like this hangry blood sugar imbalanced yeah. you know version of you and again thinking like oh yeah i'm just a snacker i just always need to have these little things on you know in my purse or in the car or i just have to eat breakfast really are signs of imbalance and i don't think people talk about that so i'm really glad you just brought all of that up um because i'm sure that's resonating with a lot of people
1: yes hopefully not making them feel called out, but no,
0: no, <laughs> yeah, no. hopefully making them just lean in and be like, okay, Danny, tell us more then. So yeah. can you break down the blood sugar? Like what is blood sugar? Mm. How does it work? And then how do these issues slowly start to manifest?
1: Yeah, that's beautifully put. And the, the next, like the perfect place to start. So what is blood sugar? Um, our body likes to have about a teaspoon, just a little bit of sugar in our blood at all times to access for easy energy our body can also store sugar in the liver in the form of glycogen so in case our our blood sugar kind of goes a little bit low then we just the liver is like oh here you go here's a little bit of sugar and kind of balances it back out our body likes it's kind of like goldilocks it likes to have our blood sugar in this really perfect range it doesn't like it too high and it doesn't like it too low and our body is always, think back to, you know, high school science, our body is always looking for homeostasis. So that return to like feeling normal and balanced or, and, and so if our blood sugar goes high, there's all these things that are going to happen to try to bring it back down to that normal Goldilocks range. And so what starts to happen is where the dysregulation sort of starts to come in is when we start to see our blood sugar swing too high or drop too low and that feels really bad in our body as well so it's very stressful for our body to have a blood sugar spike or a blood sugar crash and so the spikes when they when it it rises too fast too quickly um that is also very inflammatory for our body. It inflames, it sets out all these inflammatory molecules. It can cause hardening of the arteries. What a lot of people think of, they're afraid of cholesterol. We should really be afraid of these blood sugar spikes, which are driving those harden, the hardening of our arteries. Um, but beyond that, it does so much more, unfortunately. So when we eat mostly carbohydrates, sometimes even protein, but mainly carbohydrates, they contain glucose or sugar. And so when we eat these foods, they digest and the amount of sugar in our blood goes up. And then our body, our pancreas will sense like, oh, the blood sugar is rising. I don't like it in this range. And so it's going to secrete this hormone called insulin. And insulin's job is to take the sugar out of the blood. So it lowers blood sugar and it puts the sugar into the cells of the body. So it can be used to make energy or to be stored for later in the form of body fat. So the insulin might take the sugar and put it in the brain cells or in the liver cells or in the heart cells or in the muscle, something like this. And that's how it gets the sugar into that normal range. But sometimes we eat like so many carbohydrates or something that tastes really, really sweet and the body puts out too much insulin. So it's like, oh my gosh, she's eating... A bagel and it's got like you know like jelly on it or something and then we get this huge shoot of insulin and it actually ends up putting away too much blood sugar so then our blood sugar kind of dips a little bit too low and when it's dropping really fast from that big spike of insulin or if it drops down in this range that the body perceives it to be too low it starts to also cause a ton of symptoms and these, the earliest symptoms of this are usually, um, this can happen when, the, like I said, after a meal, or it can happen if we're hungry or if a meal is starting to be delayed. So these are going to be the first sort of times that you may notice some of these symptoms happening. So right after a meal, if you're hungry or if a meal is delayed. And the symptoms you might experience are things like feeling dizzy, shaky, anxious, hangry lightheaded weak having brain fog having difficulty concentrating a lot of brain symptoms because our brain is a very huge consumer of energy um we have a lot of those mood issues like i said anxiety we may feel irritable have short temper um, be impatient with our children or our spouses we may um also start to feel heart palpitations. We may get sweaty. Some people, their fingers turn blue. Some people get like a hot flash type feeling. Um, There's so many different symptoms of this. And then there's the symptoms that are going to drive us to go get more food because this low blood sugar is a low energy state in our body. And so our body's kind of panicking. It's almost like akin to turning the gas light on in the car Where your body's then saying, like, hey, we need more fuel ASAP. So it's going to send you cravings for things and it's going to send you intense and urgent hunger. And that's the kind of hunger that I always felt this hunger that was accompanied by symptoms and it felt very urgent. It felt like I need to eat right now. Like, really, like when, you know, remember those old Snickers commercials uh, Mm -hmm. where (laughs) someone turned into Joe Pesci because they were hungry? Like this. (laughs) what we're talking about. That is that blood sugar crashy feeling where the body is saying, hey, I don't have any more, we're almost out of energy and I don't have any way to get any energy. Remember I said earlier that our, our liver stores a bunch of sugar in there. So we should be able to get a lot of energy from our liver. And then even like over in the overnight time, also, we see people waking up with like a pounding heart and their blood sugar crashed in the middle of the night and or in the morning, as I used to wake up super shaky. It's like, what's happening then? We should be able to tap into our stored body fat, which is just stored energy. We should be able to use this fuel to energize us so we don't feel all these symptoms. But over time, what starts to happen is like I said, when we get the big spikes, we get a big release of the insulin. And then insulin, it doesn't come down as fast as the blood sugar does. So then we're snacking, and then we have a blood sugar crash, so we're eating again. And then we have we go to Starbucks, and then, oh, it's the holidays, so we're just picking on a little something, and then I'm eating my kids' snacks, or like just go out to eat. We're eating all the time. <laughs> we are eating constantly. So the, the insulin doesn't have a chance to come down all the way. And it starts to build up in the blood over time. And what happens with the body is that it kind of becomes numb to the signal of insulin. It starts to need more and more insulin to help the sugar get out of the blood and into the body. So the insulin's like knocking on the doors of the cell being like, Hey, have some, have some glucose for you. And the cells are like covering their ears being like, la, 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 you are just here. I don't care. (laughs) Like I, I, they don't want anymore. Right. So now we need more insulin and more insulin to keep knocking on the door being like, Hey, we have some glucose. And then finally it gets in. So what starts to happen is we need more and more insulin to do the same job that Insulin does in a healthy person. And so for years, we can have insulin building up, and now a person may need two, three, or four times the amount of insulin that a healthy person does, but their blood sugar is still relatively well managed. So the doctor is not telling you there's anything wrong. So then finally, it's like the insulin can't keep up with all this blood sugar all these spikes and everything and all the stress cuz stress also raises our blood sugar and so now the blood sugar we start to see it maybe dropping a little bit low cuz we're getting too much insulin or it's spiking a little bit high now it's staying high and now only now is the doctor concerned but this has been developing for years or decades so I probably got off track somewhere around there, but is that sort of setting the foundation mm-hmm. for
0: how this whole thing kind of works and starts to get dysregulated? Totally, totally. And, you know, I think you illustrated well how it's over time, it's mm-hmm. slowly with all these little habits, like you said, where we're just living on the go, we're stressed, we're grabbing a Starbucks, we're snacking constantly, and it's like, you know, by the time we see these symptoms like PCOS or extreme PMS or something like that, like this has been probably years in the making.
1: Yeah. And I also had PMDD, another one, another P the acronym worst. to throw in there. You yeah, the I'd break worst. up with whoever I was dating the week before my cycle. <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so oh my gosh. yeah. And then, so actually on that point, what so I mentioned the early signs of blood sugar issues, but our blood sugar affects every single cell, organ and process in our body. And so every cell has receptors for you know, insulin and glucose and can use glucose to fuel it. And so that means that every cell, organ and process can be impacted by blood sugar dysregulation. So process meaning things like our sleep or our energy levels. Um, If we are having a lot of blood sugar spikes, we're going to really negatively impact our sleep. Maybe we'll have trouble falling asleep, or maybe we'll have trouble um, staying asleep where we're having those nightly wake-ups. We may have a lot of energy issues where our energy might fill up after, right after we eat, but then it crashes. Or it's just you wake up and you have no energy. And then maybe by eating all the carbs and having caffeine throughout the day, then you finally have energy, but it's nighttime. And now you're like tired and wired. A lot of adrenal components in here too, because our adrenals and blood sugar are very, very connected. Um, then I mean, you can go down the list of the body and look at every single organ and see that it can be impacted by our blood sugar. I already mentioned our brain is this huge consumer of energy, so it is often the first organ to show that there's some issues with our blood sugar, so feeling that maybe... Sometimes we get anxiety, but now after years of progressed blood sugar issues, it's a full blown anxiety disorder and we need medication. Or maybe it was a little brain fog, but years or decades later, now it's memory loss and Alzheimer's, which is now being called type three diabetes.
0: Wow.
1: With um yeah, so all these issues just start to get worse. We know that, you know, moving down to our skin. My skin was one of the things that was really impacted by my blood sugar. I had a Horrible acne. Uh, We know a lot of people I work with when we optimize their blood sugar, their psoriasis goes away, their eczema goes away. Um, With our teeth, we know that sugar, we we know this one, right? Sugar can cause tooth decay, gum disease, anything inflammatory, right? Gingivitis, it can be at the root of things like that. Um, With our heart, Diabetes, like the leading cause of death for people who have diabetes are often cardiovascular complications. And that's because insulin resistance is a huge driver of high blood pressure. And it's not usually the salt. It's usually the sugar that's driving it. And um, all sorts of cardiovascular complications, like for example, when we eat sugar, every one molecule of glucose requires 55 molecules of magnesium to Process, and so if we are over-consuming, especially processed sugars in foods that do not contain helpful minerals like magnesium, we develop a really big deficiency to these, uh, with of these nutrients, and then arrhythmias can develop because calcium contracts muscles and magnesium relaxes them. And so if we have an issue with these nutrient deficiencies, we can literally be giving ourselves uh, arrhythmias from. Overconsumption of sugar, we can get into the liver. Fatty liver is a huge thing. We talked about the adrenals. Um, insulin resistance causes issue with our gallbladder. Like literally, you could just name every organ. And then, of course, we come to the you know the reproductive organs. And this is where PCOS comes in. So PCOS is the leading cause of infertility in women. High blood sugar, high blood sugar, or mismanaged blood sugar in. Uh, men can also drive hormonal imbalances and infertility as well. So it's just every system of the body, all the hormones, the sleep, the energy, the hunger, and it's and our our well being. It's so so tied in. So. As our blood sugar gets worse, we're gonna see more and more symptoms start to pop up, and those symptoms will start to get more severe. So, if at first it's just like, oh, I get like, you know, I have a sweet tooth and I'm like hungry all the time, then it's all of a sudden like I'm putting on weight because I'm eating so much and I'm spiking my blood sugar all the time. And then I have like a weight loss issue, and then it turns to hormones. And so, you get the idea, it sort of snowballs into being like more and more issues. And the thing is, is that we're not picking up that it's our blood sugar at first. We're like, well, I'm eating organic. I'm eating healthy foods. Like I was eating paleo. How on earth did I develop PCOS and have all these blood sugar issues eating whole real food? It was because I was not looking at anything through this lens of blood sugar. And I think that's what so many people miss because they're like, well, I'm going to do the brown rice instead of the white rice. It's like, I hate to break this to you, but the brown rice is absolutely the exact same blood sugar response as the white rice, except for it's delayed by like five or 10 minutes because it has to digest the the bran. but it's still the same once it digests. So it's like, there's so many misconceptions like, oh, have all these green juices and smoothies. Those are blood sugar bombs. I used to love those things. Acai bowls. I was like, oh, this is the best. These are so healthy totally spikes my blood sugar. I'm like, oh, let's have an entire sweet potato with our meal. Well, that's not an approach. Do you see the size of sweet potatoes nowadays? They're like the size of my head, right? It's the amount of carbohydrates we're eating is just not appropriate for our body. And the... Also like fruits, I mean, grapes, have you seen them? They're like, they're huge now. They're like the size of a plum and they're like cotton candy grapes. So now they're breeding fruit to be even sweeter than it was. So I would gather to say that a wild raspberry that you go find in like Washington state is going to have a vastly different amount of sugar and carbs than some that you find at the grocery store that are like the size of my palm. (laughs) So yeah, it's, it's, And of course, sugar and carbs are not the only thing that cause issues for our blood sugar. But that's sort of the lowest hanging fruit, right? We have to talk about our food. Um, We can definitely go into more stuff after that. But um, yeah, hope that answered the question.
0: It does. And I think this really touches on the frustration so many women that I work with feel where they feel like they're doing everything perfect. Like you Mm -hmm. said, they're eating really well. They're eating organic. They're trying to get in protein, they're exercising, and they just keep gaining weight and just keep having more problems. And I do really think blood sugar is the missing key that not enough people are talking about. So yeah, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've heard some stats that as much as 80% of people struggle with insulin resistance. Is that something that you believe too? Or what percentage of people do you think are really struggling with this?
1: So the last um, statistic I heard was that 88% of adults are metabolically um, inflexible or have metabolic issues, which when we talk about that word metabolic or metabolism, a lot of people think like, oh, I have a slow metabolism and, or a fast metabolism, but it really means like how your body gets energy and uses energy. And most of it has to do with our blood sugar. So if you hear those words, I want you to start thinking about blood sugar and insulin. And so I think that, you know, 12% of people being metabolically healthy, I honestly think that's actually an overstatement. (laughs) So I think that Um, those figures are old, um, you know, because I just look at what it takes in this modern world to be metabolically healthy. And with our current food landscape, I mean, you go to Home Depot, you're like, I'm just trying to buy a sink or a light bulb. And it's like, you have to walk through, like there's M&Ms at the checkout and chips and Gatorade. And it's like everywhere you go, you are bombarded with snack foods and like candy and sugar. And it's like, Oh, it's just, you know, I'm just going to run to Starbucks. Like what's in Starbucks. These drinks have like 70 grams of sugar. They have I, the ones that like Dunkin' Donuts are even worse, like 193 grams of sugar. Stop. That's not no. an exaggeration. No. In, yeah. I mean, that's in a large, but I mean, still, people are drinking oh this gosh. like at with breakfast. I mean, th- we're talking over like fifth, like there's like over 40 teaspoons of sugar. (laughs) And it's like, imagine it's like, how many sugar packets do you want? One or two. It's like, can I have 40? (laughs) Like if you think about it in terms of like, would you put 40 sugar packets in your coffee? It's just absolutely insane. So we're just inundating our bodies with sugar, like never before. And then, I mean, this is even something like I have, uh, my chiropractor has young kids and she, she's a friend of mine and she's like, I'm so discouraged because I go to these parties and how come everything has to be about sugar because I tell my kid he can't have it. And he's like reaching in the garbage can to get a popsicle. And it's like, then she feels bad. And then this, you know, parent puts in an ice cream bar in his hand and she wants to take it away. And then he's crying. It's just, it's like, I mean, just crazy what we have to go through to like keep our kids healthy and, or to like, to eat healthy ourselves. Like how often are we just tempted with food because it's everywhere and it's not just like, Oh, okay, we'll just celebrate at the holidays. No, because it's so-and-so's birthday and there's, I brought, you know, there's bagels in the break room and there's always reasons for these things and it's, Oh, treat yourself, you know, like I'm guilty of that too. So it's just, it is very hard to avoid these things and especially hard if you don't know what to look for.
0: Yeah, well, I want to get into that in just a moment here, but I first wanted to ask. You know, you said the metabolic flexibility. Mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of us even know what that would be like. So, if we were truly metabolically flexible, how would we feel, and how would we live?
1: Yeah, great question. So, what metabolic flexibility is? Um, because that that also feels a little confusing, right? Um, so, what that means is that. We are able to burn both sugar and fat for energy. So we can burn sugar from the food that we eat and we can burn fat from the food that we eat and then also utilize those stored energies in our body, like the glycogen in the liver or body fat. That's what being metabolically flexible is. So it, what it feels like would be, okay, I was working late, I didn't have a chance to eat dinner. I'm just not gonna have dinner tonight because now it's like ten o'clock and I don't want to eat then. I'm just gonna ride it out till breakfast. So that what would happen is because I didn't eat dinner, my blood sugar would start to go down a little bit, but then I have all these, like I said, stored fuels in my body that I'd just get a little bump of glycogen from the liver and that would be fine and I'd be using that glycogen. And then once that runs out, my body would just tap into burning stored body fat so I probably wouldn't feel a thing. I would probably sleep well, not feel anything, wake up and be like, oh, okay, I'm hungry. I wouldn't wake up famished and like be shaky or anything like that. So that's that ability to switch back and forth in these between these fuel sources. But most of us... Oh, and so the other thing that you would feel would be this stable energy levels, um, having balanced hormones, um, being able to have like a clear and sharp mind, so the opposite of having brain fog, having hunger that feels like, well, I could eat, but not urgent and intense hunger. You probably wouldn't have cravings. Uh, I mean, yeah, like sweets or carbs are good, so we may... Eat those, but it's not this like, I I need to go to the drive-through right now and like pick up you know a McFlurry or whatever it is. So, we would not have these cravings. We'd probably sleep well, um, and our weight would probably be relatively easy to maintain. Um, of course, blood sugar is not the only thing. You know, if there's toxins involved, like or some other hormonal issues that may be. Impacting us, certain things during menopause um, when we lose our estrogen, but that really makes us become more insulin resistant. So it's like you know chicken and egg kind of a situation. Um, but in general, someone who's metabolically flexible will just basically feel good and not be um, tied to needing to eat very urgently. And so yeah, they what you have a lot of this freedom, freedom from thinking about food all the time, and then the reverse of that is someone who is really stuck in a sugar burning mode. So what happens is after we spike our blood sugar so much, we raise these levels of insulin. And what insulin does is it blocks the body from utilizing the stored energy. So the body doesn't see that it has sugar stored in the liver. It doesn't see that it has body fat that it can use because it's stuck in this fat um, in like a fat storage mode. That's what insulin tells the body to do. So then we can't be in a fat storage mode at the same time we're trying to burn fat. The body doesn't work like that. So we try, we're like, oh, I'm you know holding on to weight. And it's like, if you have high insulin levels, good luck losing weight. You just really can't because the body is sending signals for you to store it. So it's storing everything. And that's why when I had PCOS, I felt like I could just look at a plate of cookies and gain five pounds. Like I didn't even touch them. I'm like, this is so unfair. So that's a big piece of this. And so, yeah, the metabolic inflexibility leads us to be this sugar burner. And so if we can't utilize the stored energy, we're dependent on eating every couple of hours to get energy. So that's why it feels like I have to snack between my meals because our blood sugar starts dropping and then we're kind of like SOL, like there's, there's nothing there to help us. So then we have to eat or our adrenals have to come in and pump us with stress hormones to artificially create new blood sugar with stress hormones like epinephrine, which is adrenaline. So if you kind of feel that like crashing feeling and then your heart's pounding, that's your adrenals coming in, kind of saving you. Same thing with that concept overnight. Um, If your blood sugar crashes overnight, usually you wake up with a little bit of a pounding heart or you're wide awake because you have those stress hormones that just had to come in and create new sugar because the rest of the, the normal backup systems weren't working properly. And so those are major signs of metabolic inflexibility. And then that leads us to feel all those symptoms we felt before, I mentioned before
0: hmm that was a really great breakdown. So we can all see the goal, what we wanna feel and how we wanna live. Yes. <laughs> and I think probably everyone listening right now is now wondering, okay, so what do we do? And maybe you can break down first a couple like mainstream bits of advice mm-hmm. and how effective they are and then give us a few like tried and true things that really do make a difference.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I was just on like a mainstream website yesterday, and it's like insulin resistance is caused by overeating and not exercising enough. I'm like, no, it's not. (laughs) Exercising is very important. Um, It is. We need to use our muscles, or they will become insulin resistant. So I guess that exercise piece is partially right. Um, But uh, one of the most important things we want to do when we talk about exercise is you want to build muscle muscle is metabolically active tissue. Think about it as like building, like building sponges. The more sponges we have, the more place we have for the glucose to go and get out of the bloodstream. About 80% of the food that we eat goes directly to our muscles. And so if we have a lot of muscle, um, then our we just absorb it right into the muscles and it doesn't impact our blood sugar. So that's a really, really important thing to do. Muscle is super important for longevity and so many things. And ladies, don't be afraid to build muscle. Muscle is sexy. <laughs> and so it's it's also really good for our blood sugar. And so if we had to choose between like, like cardio versus weightlifting for what's better for your blood sugar, they're both good. So exercise is gonna be good anyway but um, the, the weightlifting definitely has an edge there because you are working on building muscle and then you get those extra reserves to improve like your, uh, your blood sugar response to meals even well after the workout is completed. So that's the movement piece, very important. And one of the best things we can do is move right after a meal. So movement after meals, really easy to remember um even just going for a walk is amazing at helping to blunt those blood sugar spikes so we mentioned that our blood sugar we wanted to stay stable to avoid those spikes and crashes those big swings and so one of the best ways to do this is going for a walk after your meals and even a walk just like a couple of minutes can be really helpful but I will say if you eat, let's say, a meal and it's got a bunch of rice or something, you can't just walk for like 10 minutes and be like, oh, that was all I had to do. <laughs> it The amount you need to move is really dependent on how many carbs you do take in. So that's just something to consider. Um, but I personally love to wear a continuous glucose monitor to see what my blood sugar is doing. And this is not mainstream advice at all because... Uh, your doctor would probably look at you like you have five heads if you ask for a a CGM because you don't have uncontrolled type 2 diabetes. And that's what they're typically used to – uh, prescribing this for. and but we want to use it so we don't end up there, right? And so we want to use it to see what is my blood sugar doing from this meal? And then we can make those changes. We can do these little strategies or hacks to see, oh, if I eat this meal and sit at my desk, then it spikes, you know, let's say 60 points. If I eat this meal and then go for a, a 30 minute walk, I only get a 20-point spike, like amazing, huge changes. And then you might notice, oh, wow, I didn't feel a crash after that meal. I didn't feel like I felt really, you know, full and energized as opposed to like, oh, it spiked 60 points and then it crashed and I was tired and then it made me grumpy and then I wanted to eat chocolate. Like it's that whole pattern that starts happening. So in terms of food, one of the most important things we can do, you know, mainstream is going to tell you like, eat lean meats and, you know, avoid red meat. And I don't know, eat your whole healthy whole grains. And I'm going to partially disagree with this. So I do believe um, I want you to be totally eating meat. And I want that to be like the centerpiece of your plate and your diet. Um, Having a good amount of animal protein is going to first off, Protein is the most satiating macronutrient. And so our body has this set point where it's always looking for a certain amount of protein because it's what our body uses to build and repair everything in our body. So we need so much of it. And so our body's always looking to make sure we get enough of it. And so my best hack, if you take away anything from this whole episode is eat your protein first and eat your protein until you literally can't take another bite of it because we have that natural set point for protein. And we don't typically, we're not typically able to go over it very easily. Um, And there's one exception of like Joey and friends when he gets the meat sweats because he's eating too much protein, like too much (laughs) turkey. Like it doesn't happen. Like we just really naturally, it's like if you have a steak on your plate and you eat the steak, you're like, I can't have any more of the steak. But I can have the broccoli and I can have some of the sweet potato. There's room for dessert. You've heard that saying, right? So there's always room for these other things. And so I think that protein is so, so important that we want to fill up with protein and then eat the other things on our plate like our non-starchy vegetables, which contain fiber, which also help to slow down the absorption of sugar. So that's going to help our blood sugar. The other thing is that the proteins usually come packaged with fat. So if we have you know, ground beef or if we have a chicken thigh with the skin on, salmon, there's usually fat in the proteins we're eating, and those are the, some of the best ones for our blood sugar. Um, a lot of people have, they can be pretty sensitive to protein. So if they eat like lean chicken breast, they may experience a blood sugar crash after that, which is kind of crazy to think about, but I work with a lot of people who are very sensitive to this stuff. And they even just find that it's the fat that really makes the difference for them to be able to go longer between meals. So this is really different from mainstream medicine. I'm gonna tell you to heavily, heavily embrace healthy fats. These are so important because if we're knowing like, okay, we need to cut down on our carbs a little bit because maybe we're overeating carbs a little bit. The mistake I see people make is that they cut down the carbs and then they're going to have like chicken and broccoli and like maybe like a a little tiny drizzle of olive oil thinking that there's, you know, a, a sufficient amount of fat in that. And so they've basically just given themselves protein, which is a building block, fiber, which is, you know, good for our digestion and our gut, but nothing else. There's no energy on that plate. If we think about energy, it comes from carbohydrates or from fat. And so, if we lower carbs, we have to lower, we have to increase our fats. And so, that is like things like fatty meats. So, from well raised sources, grass fed beef, lamb, um, organic chicken with the skin on, egg yolks, uh, things like raw dairy, if you can tolerate dairy, um, avocados, coconuts, olives, and all their oils. Nuts and seeds, go easy on these. These are really easy to overdo. One handful a day, no more. (laughs) Um, But those are the foods that have fat in them. And then healthy fats like butter and olive oil, avocado oil, coconut oil, those kind of things. So we want to load up on those on our plate as well. So to back up, we want to eat our protein and fats and have our non-starchy vegetables, which are those above-ground vegetables like not a sweet potato, but more like broccoli or lettuce or something. So we want to have the protein, fat, and fiber first, and then save the carbs for last because that actually helps reduce the blood sugar spike because it helps to slow the absorption of the sugar into the system so that the insulin can do its job right away of putting it away. And then we don't get that huge quick change, that rush of blood sugar that our body hates so much and is going to try to correct, and it corrects it wrong. So we can avoid all that if we just have our carbs last. There's a huge difference that you'll see on your continuous glucose monitors if you do this.
0: Very interesting. Those are such easy, accessible things that any of us can do. Load up on the protein, build muscle and yeah, women, we're not going to get bulky and, uh, <laughs> look like meatheads or something. It's actually semi-challenging to put on muscle to begin with. So exactly. Have creatine. Not... protein. Five exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. like you said, going for a walk. So I've heard a lot about CGMs, but mm-hmm. I've never actually done one. Is there a company that you like for that?
1: So in my Instagram profile link, I have a bunch of companies that I link to that have devices. And the reason is, is because I mentioned your doctor giving them to you. In the US, you need a prescription at the moment for continuous glucose monitors. So there's that wall there. You can ask your doctor for it. So if you have a very good relationship with your doctor, a very progressive thinking doctor, a functional doctor, absolutely ask your doctor for the script. But if you don't, you can use any of these com- uh, companies. Uh, they're like levels, Nutrisense, Very, Tacrimonial, Cygnos. Um, they're all great companies and they all have their own apps that you can use. And you can I, I really like the companies because you can use their apps. The main default apps that come with the with the devices themselves again, they're really made for people with type 2 diabetes. So you'll see that you don't get as much granularity looking at your data because the chart goes from, let's say, 50 to 350, where I'm really only looking in the range. I only need it to be showing me like 50 to 150. So it doesn't let you zoom in to see all of that all the time. And that's where These other companies, their apps are really helpful because it might just tell you, you just had a spike of 46 points and you can log your food, you can log your activities. So sometimes people might see that walking will lower their blood sugar, but high intensity exercises will raise their blood sugar. And that's common because our our liver is dumping sugar into the system because it's sensing, oh, she needs to run and get away. That This is a threat. Um, we might see blood sugar spikes when we are having an argument or in periods of high stress. If there's high chronic stress, this of course can lead to chronically high blood sugar or the opposite. For some people, it drives these low blood sugar moments or lows after meals. Um, and then some other things that might show up on a CGM would be things like heat and cold exposure so this can cause spikes for people like I took a hot bath last night and it spikes my blood sugar and then it kind of drops it a little mm-hmm. um, and people go in cold plunges and they can get highs and or lows so anything that causes stress will show up on the blood sugar monitor as um, either a spike or a drop for some people some people just have different, ways their body expresses things. And it really depends on a lot of other factors. But um, just as much as we don't want a big spike, we also, I've been talking about, we don't want those low drops. And one of the things I see a lot of people who have low blood sugar, and a lot of people struggle with feeling like their blood sugar is low, but it's not actually low, And this is usually just the case if there's more progressed insulin resistance. And what sort of happens is your body's set point just kind of gets set higher. So then if you drop low, like let's say to 90, which isn't particularly low at all, it's in the normal range – then you your body's like, oh my God, it's too low. We're not used to it down here. And so that's when it will start to send you these sy- symptoms. Like you might feel anxious or shaky and like you need to eat right away. And it's like, why is this happening? My blood sugar is in a normal range. And that's when doctors tend to gaslight you and say, you just need anxiety meds. I see this all the time. So one of the things I just want to call out is that As much as it's great to measure our blood sugar, and I think we all should get these CGMs, that one thing you don't want to do is let your symptoms override what you're seeing on these devices. You want to take all of these things into account. You want to look at the numbers. You want to look at the patterns of what you're seeing. And you also really want to tune into your your symptoms because that's really going to give you the best idea if there's something wrong or not.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important reminder for everyone. Um, what about lab testing? So if someone has been listening to all of this and feels like they have definitely something going on with their blood sugar, what are the key tests that they need to request from a doctor? Yeah, so
1: usually the doctor will test your fasting glucose and your A1C. But I don't agree with the doctor's ranges totally on the fasting glucose, they will say anything under a hundred is fine. And I do not agree. My blood sugar, when I had PCOS and hypoglycemia, which is the other half of what I had, um, was 60. And that that's very low. And that's why I was so shaky and lightheaded and felt like I was going to pass out. So, um, you also don't want it to be too low. So, but the doctors didn't say anything to me when it was 60. Not one doctor said anything, and it was I got blood work three times that year. Not one said anything, which is like very okay. annoying to me. So I think that the optimal range is somewhere around 70 to 85 milligrams per deciliter. If you're listening to this and you're outside of the US, you can just take all these numbers and divide them by 18. To find the millimoles so luckily it's an easy conversion but I don't know the millimoles off the top of my head I'm sorry so we're looking for about 70 to 85 as optimal and so this range of 86 to 99 the doctor is like oh yeah it's perfect it I don't think it's perfect already I would bet you that there's insulin creeping up that is driving some blood sugar dysregulation at this stage And so one thing the doctor doesn't test for, oh, let me finish the fasting glucose before I go into that. Then um, uh, 100 to 125, the doctors are going to consider that Pre-diabetes and then 125 and above for fasting glucose would be considered diabetes. I don't diagnose or treat anyone as a nutritional therapy practitioner, so I default to those ranges. I'm not telling this information for you to diagnose yourself. You need more information than that for any diagnosis, but just something to keep in mind. Then with the A1C, um, that's something that the doctors do test as well. And they say like, oh, below 5.6, uh, below 5.7 is great, but I don't think so. I believe that 5.2, 5.3 is kind of the highest we want to have there. And an A1C is an average of our glucose levels over the last three months. So if we have a lot of highs and lows, then our average is going to look pretty good. So this isn't really that sensitive of a test. And again, the fasting glucose, that one's just one snapshot in time. And then we have this average. So it's some information, but it's not a ton of information. And that's why I really like the continuous glucose monitors. Um, With the pre-diabetic range would be 5.7 to 6.4. And then diabetic range would be 6.4 or above. Your doctor would probably tell you this. Um, But there's those people who are having these drops and these low blood sugar. And the doctor's like, well, your A1C is perfect. So you have to be fine. And it's like, you're not fine. It's these tests can rule in pre-diabetes and diabetes, but they cannot rule out other blood sugar issues. They cannot rule out insulin resistance. They cannot rule out like reactive hypoglycemia. So I want, that's why I want people to get these continuous glucose monitors so they can see for themselves what patterns they're experiencing. And then if you're at the doctor, the one other test that you want to ask for is a fasting insulin test. Most doctors, again, are going to say no because they don't know how to interpret this data. But you can get a fasting insulin test. If not, you can try to find one on your own. There's, you know, certain labs. I think there's one called Ulta Labs. I have no association with them at all, but I think it's $26 to order a fasting insulin test. So you can do that. And we're looking for the fasting insulin to be below five, but not zero, but below five. And already at about six, seven, eight, we're going to start to see some early signs of insulin resistance. The mainstream range your doctor will probably use is two to 20, but at 20, I mean, we're going to see significant insulin resistance already. Mm -hmm. So this is not a good marker. And then you can also use the HOMA-IR. It's H-O-M-A-I-R. And that's just a calculation that you can – it's a calculator that you can find online to put in your fasting glucose and your fasting insulin. And it gives you a calculation and will tell you kind of like – how much insulin your body needs to use to manage your blood sugar. So we don't want that number. We want it to be around 1, this calculation. And at about 1.9, we're already seeing some early signs of insulin resistance. So um, those are just some numbers that you can, um, can look into. I actually have a free program coming out. Hopefully it'll be out by the time this recording comes out, it's called Sugar Savvy, and it's going to help you understand all these blood sugar numbers, what numbers to look for, what to ask your doctor for, how to interpret the CGM, what you want your blood sugar to be doing, what it means if it's like spiking or crashing, or if it's going over this certain number. So it's teaching you all of those things and how to test your blood sugar, even with a finger prick monitor, because some people can get those uh, before they can get the CGM. So Um, hopefully I'll be able to send that to you to uh, share in the show notes.
0: Totally. That sounds like such a great resource. And I'm so glad you provided the ranges for these um, tests, you know, for people to have run really, this should just be part of a yearly Mm -hmm. blood work um, checkup. But I think so many people, at least that I work with are so, Disillusioned with Western medicine, and they're so tired of being declined when they ask for certain tests, you know, and so they just don't go yearly anymore. But yeah. I think, again, this shows how important it is to be checking in on ourselves every year and get this data so that we can make improvements as needed.
1: Yes, absolutely. This has
0: been such a good episode. I oh, have loved this so much. Where can everyone connect with you and continue to learn from you?
1: Yeah, so I hang out a lot on Instagram. My handle is Danielle Hamilton Health. And I take a lot of this information and try to make it really easy to understand in these helpful picture graphics. And I also have a podcast, Unlock the Sugar Shackles, where I like to talk, if you can tell. <laughs> and uh, I hang out there. And my website's DanielleHamiltonHealthaswell.com. <laughs>
0: Amazing. And yeah, as soon as your freebie comes out, please let me know. We'll add that to the show notes too. And yeah, just thank you for what you do. You have such a refreshing approach to all of this, and you do make it very simple to understand and really empowering. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week. If you love this episode, you can share it on Instagram and tag Danny and I. And otherwise, my friends, we will catch you here on the Cyclical Podcast next week.